the, uh, the Baltimore Orioles were one of my teams I really liked as a kid. They were one of the most successful baseball teams from the 1960s to the early 1990s. And the organization in that era, which went to many World Series, won three of them, uh, the, the organization was, was defined by something they called the Oriole Way. It's really significant. Uh, it had a big impact on culture, whether you know about it or not. Here's a Bleacher Report summary of the Oriole Way. The Oriole Way was a template that was used to draft, develop, and train players in AA and AAA ball in preparation for the professional ranks. The concept was to teach a, a system and have a plug-and-play mentality with all the organization's players, and it worked. For a short time, it was truly the standard in baseball. They found a way to win when others couldn't, which was really what the Oriole Way was about. They played great defense, pitched well, and never gave up the three attributes to any winning organization. Close quote. They even had a notebook that you got uh, that I was very blessed to get to read. My high school locker mate was drafted by the Orioles. And so when the Orioles drafted him, he let me read the Oriole way. They had an Oriole way for how to scout a pitcher. There was an Oriole way for how to practice your swing. There was an Oriole way for how to warm up. I mean, everything had an Oriole way. It had, it had a huge impact on many businesses, even nonprofits. For example, those of you who worked at Pine Cove, uh, you learned the Pine Cove way. It was a handbook that we started developing in the 1980s, and we stole it directly from the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, but the Orioles hadn't really hit on anything new. 2,000 years earlier, God Almighty had already laid out His way, God's way. And a big part of God's way is contained in the Apostle Paul's letter to Corinth, the, the, one, the epistle we now call 1 Corinthians. And we're going to study that today and learn more about God's way, because it changes things. Before we dive in, let's get some context. Who were the Corinthians? Um, that's the first thing you see in your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in, open it up on the left-hand side, you'll see the headline, Who Were the Corinthians? Um, we're going to learn about the historical and cultural context of the city-state of Corinth. Now, we're just going to cover just, just a few tidbits of Corinthian history. I, I selected the things that directly impact Paul's images and, and his topics in this letter. We start with Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the legendary first king of Corinth. This was a man who was so enamored with his own cleverness that the gods gave him a curse. Anybody remember what Sisyphus' curse was? What was it? That's right. Endlessly roll this, this rock up a hill. In some legends, he's carrying it and some he's pushing it. And he takes it up the hill. Oh, at the very crest of the hill, it rolls back down. And that is actually a perfect picture of what life was like in Corinth. This was a city-state that was very enamored with itself. It was continually self-congratulating, and yet they were also continuously, I mean continuously, falling into ugly, ugly sin. That, that's Corinth in, in a person, in Sisyphus. In the archaic period, Homer described Corinth as wealthy, wealthy Corinth. Um, here's why. They had the most strategic location in the world at that time. It's somewhat like Singapore in the modern world. Uh, you know, Singapore is the busiest port in the world because of its location, strategic location. That was what Corinth was like. Look, they, they were astride the major landmass of, of Europe here in the Attica, and then connected between them was the Peloponnesus, the Gulf of Corinth, which went across to Italy and all the west, the Saronic Gulf, which went to the Levant and the east. All of that was controlled by Corinth. It's a very strategic location. Um, at some point in the early classical era, a massive temple to Aphrodite was built way up here on top of the Acrocorinth. That's the, the, the large hill fortress that rises above the city. At that um, temple, thousands of hetiras, uh, hetira is a temple prostitute, uh, worked there. They catered to the sailors, to the affluent visitors, to the men of the city. By the way, they made that temple fabulously wealthy. Some of them became rich themselves. The best butcher shop in the city was up there. 
at the Aphrodite temple. It's where the sacrifices were cooked. They were sold there in the meat market and the restaurant. Um, this is grotesque, but just to give you a feeling for Corinth. Apparently, uh, the way it worked was that men in the city would take their family to dinner up at the best restaurant in town at the Temple of Aphrodite. And after supper, uh, Daddy would kiss the children, tell them goodnight. Mom and the kids would go down the hill back home, and the dad would walk through the heavy, thick, double-veil uh, curtains that separated the restaurant from the worship area where he would go visit the hetiras, the prostitutes there. It's disgusting. Um, and rather similar, I would imagine, to 21st century Las Vegas. Um, in the pre-classical and classical eras of Greece, writers continue to speak about Corinthian wealth. Thucydides calls it rich. Pindar says prosperous. Herodotus affluent. Oh, look at this one. Aristophanes made up a word. Corinthiadzomai. It's just fun to say Corinthiadzomai. It's kind of like kinkajou. It's just fun to say. All right, so uh, a count of three, you can say Corinthiadzomai. One, two, three. Corinthiadzomai. It, it, it's, it obviously means to be a Corinthian, to, to walk like an Egyptian, to be a Corinthian. Corinthiadzomai. But you know what it was used? Here's the context. This is wild. It was used of, some, of a person who was in a completely sexually immoral lifestyle. That's Corinthiadzomai. Ugh. Uh, they were wealthy. Uh, black figure pottery was made in Corinth. It's the only place in the world it was made. They never gave the secret away to anyone else. We still don't know exactly how they made it. Business boomed. Uh, get this. By 400 B.C., there were 200,000 free male citizens in Corinth and its many colonies. 200,000. Okay, by contrast, there's a city there now, a, a modern Greek city uh, just outside called New Corinth. It has 40,000 residents total. Okay, 200,000. That's just the free men who could vote. They also had 500,000 slaves in Corinth and in its navy and in their many colonies. This was a very prosperous place, but it didn't last. About 200 years before the Apostle Paul was born, the Romans conquered all of the Hellenic heartland, uh, ostensibly to free uh, Greece from Macedonia. Corinth was laid, laid waste. But about 100 years later, there was this kind of, kind of Roman guilt. Uh, you ever notice this? You'll see this in history all the time. About 100 years after a people group conquers another people group, they suddenly feel guilty about it, and they want to go back and do something. So a guy that you may have heard of named Julius Caesar... He led a really strong push in 46 B.C. to rebuild Corinth and make it better than it ever was. And, and his, his successor, Augustus, and his successors lavished money on this city. You know what they did? They made everybody who lived there a free citizen of Rome. Everybody. They gave, they gave uh, no interest construction loans for anybody who would build at Corinth. So it became, it became a major city in the Roman Empire. Businessmen flocked there. The Romans were at pains to reestablish the, the good old days. Back to the good old days at, at Corinth. Um, they rebuilt the Acrocorinth. They rebuilt the temples, the harbors. Uh, the, the, the army brought stability and income. By the way, people were most excited about the fact that they, they put in a new spring in the Agora, and to this day, it offers perfect cold water. I have drunk out of that spring, and it's fantastic. Uh, the Emperor Nero, after Corinth was rebuilt, he even went there and he competed in a music competition. He sang in uh, Corinth Idol. Um, it was part of the Isthmian Games. And by the way, the judges very wisely said he won. He, uh, he, got, he got the crown. Uh, it was at that period that Strabo uh, described the city, the renewed city, as, quote, always mighty and wealthy, close quote. We need to know the context, and the context shows us this. Corinth is a place of wealth with messed up sexuality. In that environment, the Corinthian church struggled, and they struggled with 10 serious problems. Now, Pastor A.J. reviewed six of these last week. Here's all 10. 
Uh, ten great big problems at Corinth. Divisions, they were, they were smitten with division in their church. Sexual immorality, lawsuits between brethren, marriage and divorce problems, meat sacrificed to idols. Ooh, they struggled over this. Should we eat that? I mean, it's the healthiest meat in the whole city. It hasn't had flies on it all day. It's been cooked properly, but ah, it was sacrificed to an idol. What do we do? Some thought they should, some they shouldn't. Uh, freedom and responsibility, they struggled with that dynamic. And by the way, that's all what we covered in the first section that we studied of 1 Corinthians. Now we're getting to the last part of the book. We start it today, and we're going to learn about their orderly problems, their selfishness, and their agape feast. That's communion they did outside of church in their small groups, loveless use of gifts, and confusion regarding the resurrection. Now, I know what you're thinking. You, you look at that list and you're saying in your uh, William F. Buckley, William F., William F. Buckley a, a junior, junior voice, you're saying, so, so those, those were their problems, but um, if you don't mind my asking, um, why should I study their letter? Mm. Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, look again at those 10 serious problems and think, think for a moment. Each of those continues to plague the local church to this day, don't they? We just walk through them. Look, they had divisions. Oh, my goodness. We have identity politics that divides us all over the place. We, we've got in church, we've got pastor worship. It's disgusting. They had sexual immorality in many things. We've got it in nearly everything, right? They, they struggled with lawsuits between the brethren. We've made that a step further. We actually sue churches, something never would have occurred to them. They had marriage and divorce problems. We've got that. In fact, and I'm not at all picking on our precious brethren, but we've got churches, many, many churches that don't even care. People divorce, they violate Scripture, and the elders of those churches just sit back and say, well, we don't have time, we can't mess with it, even though Scripture commands them to mess with it. That's today. Widespread. They had meat sacrificed to idols. Oh, oh, we, we got them beat on that one. Here, you, you want to break up a life group? Do this. Go to, go to your life group and just talk about music, okay? About what is secular and what is sacred. Or, or, or bring up diapers. What kinds of diapers are really holy? Yeah? <laughs> And if you really want to blow the whole life group up and maybe come to physical blows, talk about food. Yeah, what's healthy? What should you eat? What should you not? It'll, you'll never meet again. It'll kill the whole group. Um, they had freedom and responsibility problems. We do as well. We, in fact, we've got this entitlement mindset that makes ours really difficult. More on that in a moment. They had order in the church problems. Have you, again, not picking on our wonderful brethren in Christ, but have you, have you seen what's called worship in lots of churches? In the un, unbiblical expressions of supposed worship that actually violate Scripture, or, or, or maybe worse, worshiping a pastor, or, or, or the music part of worship that is, it's, it doesn't even pretend to be worshiping God, it's just a performance for people. It's absurd. They, they had selfishness in their agape feasts. Thank goodness we're not like that. Church is all about me. Every one of us goes on, well, I like this, I didn't like that, it's all about me, that's what I want. That's our mindset. Okay, not yours. It's other people's mindsets. Anyway, loveless use of gifts. They had that problem. We, we, we even abuse our gifts. Um, and they had confusion about the resurrection. We've got confusion about the, uh, every, every theology of the Bible, every doctrine in the Bible. We've got the same problems or worse. Derek Prime gives a great summary about the, the central core issue in every one of these specific problems. Look at this. This is really well said. The thing for which to watch when you're reading 1 Corinthians is the way in which Paul consistently relates every subject and problem to the centrality of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the problems, I would say all the problems and difficulties of the Corinthian church arose from their losing sight of him and his headship. The enemy of our souls encourages the same peril today close quote. And that's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. 
Now, one final bit of context. What's the letter about? Four things. Letter's about four things. Who Christians are, what God gives them, what's going to happen, and what Christians should do now. So here's what 1 Corinthians says about who you are if you're a believer in Christ. Brethren, sanctified, saints, called, one church under one Lord. All God's people said? Amen. How cool is that? So what does God give you? Grace, peace, His words, knowledge, gifts, strength, fellowship, and correction. So what's going to happen? Well, the resurrected Lord and Messiah Jesus will be revealed. We already studied that part of 1 Corinthians. And, and Christians will be made blameless. And I didn't have room to fit on the slide, but they, they're going to stand, every one, at the Bema before the judgment seat of Christ and either lose or gain rewards based on what we did. So that's the fourth issue. What should Christians do now? Use their powers for good. Okay, that's the buildup. Speaking of buildup, I recently had to have a crown put on tooth number 30. Um, I just showed off and used the number so the dental people here would be happy. And, uh, uh, and before they put the new crown on, they got to do a thing called a build-up first. got to build it up, and then they can cement the crown on top. Okay, now that we've finished our build-up, let's cement today's text in our hearts. Open your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me, says the Apostle Paul, as I also imitate Christ. God's way is discipleship. The repeated verb is translated in your Bibles, disciple, follow, imitate. However you render it, this is the antithesis of Sinatra singing, I did it my way, right? Paul's is singing, I'll do it God's way. This is wholesale following God, the opposite of the human norm. Look at our notes. I copied a recent tweet from a Dallas Seminary prof, uh, Michael Spiegel. Look what Dr. Spiegel says. As an American... I have every right to set any doctrinal and moral standards I like, but as a Christian, I have a responsibility to submit to the doctrinal and moral standards revealed by God through the apostles and prophets, whether I like it or not, close quote. My translation of uh, verse 1 combines the two original Greek words into one word, imitate, and that's fine. However, there's, there's something we need to note. Please look at the slide. This is really significant. The Greek actually contains a form of both a verb and a noun. Uh, ginomai and uh, memetes. Ginomai is uh, the verb. It's a, it's a common form of to be, but it's rendered here in the continuous sense. So that means this is something we keep on doing. Uh, memetes is um, a word that comes in English, actually. Mime, imitate, those all come from this word. So you put this, this verb and this noun together, and they tell us to always keep imitating Christ. As Dr. Vine said a long time ago, these teach us, these two words, teach us that what we became at conversion, we must diligently continue to be thereafter. Now, the Christians that I know are, are mostly serious about this. They're, they're serious about following Jesus. And they know, they understand, they agree that that means we must follow the leadership of the biblical apostles, including Paul. Amen. But what Christians say they know and what they actually do are often very divergent. And the evidence is concerning to say the least. Let me just give you three examples. These are just three that sprang very readily to mind. Um, we say, we say, yes, we follow God's way, which in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul shows us, that means being content in all circumstances, right? God's way involves being content, but we're rarely content. Have you, have you ever thought about what we're like as modern Christians? I, I think we're, we're an odd combination of four things, and I don't quite understand how these fit together. It's fascinating. But we are, we, we are a combination of entitlement, workaholism, consumerism, and laziness. That, that's us. That's not God's way. Uh, here, here's a second one. Paul says in Colossians 1 that God's way is to pray for the church and to pray for Christians. Most of us don't. 
We, we, we don't. Or if we do pray, we go the other way at the weird extreme and we actually pray to Christians or to the church or to dead Christians or sometimes, look at this, we, they pray to politicians. Uh, here's a third example, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2 tells us to, to imitate Paul in doing what he does, which is discipling and teaching others in the faith, right? And yet, many of us, including many of us here, who are very well-versed in Scripture, we're very well-versed in wise living, we cannot name one person that we are actively training. There's a huge disconnect between saying we know God's way and actually following. And God's way is discipleship. By the way, that's what the word means. Disciple just means to follow. And, and we are supposed to always follow, to always be imitating the Lord in His revealed Word, but we often don't. And sadly, the Corinthians were just like us. Paul's next going to point out, although they follow God's way in some things, and that's good, the Corinthians are not always following God's way. Let's read the rest of the section. Uh, verse 2. Now, I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she should be covered. <clears throat> a man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. Man's not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. This powerful text introduces all churches of all times to six ideas. Six ideas about honor, specifically honor that has to do with, with sex, with a person's gender. Two things must be honored. Four things must be appreciated. First and most importantly, God must be honored. By the way, that's a headline atop the right side of our notes. God must be honored. That's the issue in verses 2 and 3. The main thing is God is head over all people. He is truly Lord of all. I need two people to volunteer. Two people to volunteer. Come on, kids, somebody. All right, come on up. I'll take you. That's great. I need one more. Uh, yes, come on up, Your Majesty. Come. Yeah, you bet. Come on. All right. You two come up here, please. Come on. The scene is a, uh, a medieval castle, okay? And uh, you, uh, you're the king, all right? So you stand right here. Stand right here, all right? And you are my lord, okay? And I work for you. You work for him. So take a knee right here, if you would. Take a knee. Hold your hands up like this. We'll do it in the French fashion. Put your hands around her hands, please. Look at him and say, I swear fealty to you. Say it, I swear fealty to you. That's right. And say, I receive it. I receive it. Okay, now you stand up. Come here. Okay, now I'm going to swear fealty to you because I'm your knight. Not very shining armor, but I'm your knight. Okay, so put your hands around mine. I swear fealty to you. I Re receive it. Very good. Okay, now, look, here's the scene. You two are planning out a huge battle. I'm just a knight. You're the king. You're the lord. All right? You're going to plan out this battle. So be talking about a battle, and I'll be off stage, and then I'll come in. Okay, ready? And action. Scene. Go. Talk about the battle. Okay. Hey, uh, good to see you. Yeah, my lord, I don't. I, look, your majesty, let me just talk directly. You know what? I don't even need to talk to you. I, I, I have an idea. I'm just going to do it on my own. I, I have this great idea. I'm going to run it on my own. Okay. 
scene. Stop. Now, your majesty, how did it feel as the king when I walked in and I totally dissed your lord? I mean, I, 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 mean, I told her, talk to the hand. I put my hand right in her face. Did that seem right to you? No. Okay, my, my lord, how did it feel to you? Did it seem proper that I, your knight, would just ignore you and act like a gypsy who hadn't sworn fealty to anyone? Did that seem proper? No. no. A hand, please, for my king and my lord. Thank you. Beautiful. All right. Acting like a gypsy when you are in a fealty relationship is absurd. It dishonors the Lord and King. Think of it like this. If, if chemistry is more your thing than medieval politics, um, acting like a free radical when you are bonded in a covalent relationship is absurd, right? It's ridiculous. It violates the laws of chemistry. The same is true of married couples who act like free agents, which takes us to God's next point. God's next point is sex differences must be appreciated. When I lived in Germany, the wonderful brethren there at our church, and they were precious to me, they practiced women's head coverings. So women always had a head covering on in church at all times. Um, and the men usually wore hats, and they would take their hats off whenever they walked into the church building. It was a nice cultural tradition, but I was amazed when they said that they did that because of this scripture. Folks, that is not a proper application of this text at all. I mean, no offense, but that is actually pretty far off of God's point. Look, the issue in the wild world of Corinth was husbands and wives acting like the licentious fools who were all around them. The concern in a city known for having no sexual mores was that men and women would act like free agents when they were actually bonded as one before the Lord. Listen, let me try and set the culture for you. When a woman in first century Corinth went into public with her head uncovered, it was a very telling licentious moment. What, what she was declaring when her head was uncovered in public is that she was unattached, or at least open to liaison. Her, her headdress was an important cultural sign. It was almost always given her by her husband at their engagement. Uh, it, was her, it, it was his way of saying that he would provide for her, he would care for her, literally would cover her. The closest thing I ever witnessed was one time at a Muslim wedding in, a, in another country where, where the father took off the bride's veil during the ceremony and then her husband put another headdress on her. It was really very moving and very beautiful. And I understood what they were trying to say. But, but in every modern Western culture, like where we live, a headdress like that has no meaning. It certainly doesn't say what, what the, the Scripture is saying. It doesn't say this woman is married and protected by her husband to whom she is faithful. Now, we have a symbol for that. Every culture does. Every culture has a symbol for that. What's our, what's our symbol for that? What do we do? We use rings. Yeah, that, that is what this says. The ring says that. It is that I am I am bound to my spouse. I am not a free agent. That's why one of the sad, sad moments, you're watching a movie, right? A modern movie, and, and, and some guy slips off his wedding ring, right? And then he walks into some public place like a bar. What, do you, what, what has the director just told you? What's going to happen? Nothing good. Adultery is going to happen. It's ugly. It's sad. It's horrible, right? That you, you, you don't take off. That's what Paul is saying in Corinth. Not wearing head coverings is as unnatural to them as slipping off, which I can't, mine won't come off, slipping off one's wedding ring, right? Pastor Kenneth Wilson gives a really neat, concise summary. Look what he says. He says, if women are asked to wear head coverings today, they're asked to do what is abnormal. Though Paul was asking them to do what was normal in that context, close quote. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking in that uh, David Flaherty uh, golf channel imitation voice that you like to do, you're saying, so then we just, we wear wedding rings and, uh, and then we're doing things God's way, right? Yeah. 
That's it. I mean, that's the whole thing. Well, yes and no, David. That's only one of the issues here. And frankly, it is the less important background point. Listen carefully. The big issue in this text is to act and dress with this concept clear. Men and women are different. They are different, period. How anyone feels about that doesn't matter. Whatever the culture screams doesn't matter. Males and females are different. Again, Wilson nails it. Look what he says. It seems that Paul was asking the Corinthians to follow a normal cultural practice that in that day reflected an understanding that God had created men and women to function in different roles. As long as men and women today are not communicating the creative order and distinctions are done away, they are being obedient to this passage. The point is not to do anything that diminishes the sexual distinctions which are gifts from God. All God's people said, amen. Now, if you think that was controversial, look where God goes next. He says, hierarchies exist and they must be appreciated. Verse 3, go back to verse 3. But I want you to know Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God, talking about the Father in that context, is the head of Christ. A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Man was not created for woman, but woman for man. Most of us were raised to believe that hierarchies are all bad. In fact, whole swaths of modern Western cultures are consumed with reaction against hierarchies. The the, the hatred of authority, fear of the man, deconstructionism. It is one of the most accepted tenets of modern thought. That hierarchies are de facto evil. It's sad because not only is that idea unbiblical, it's, it's untrue and absurd. Let me show you. Real quick experiment. Okay, listen up. I want you to arrange these things. I want you to arrange. I'm not going to give you any more instruction than that. Arrange these things. Okay? The five things. Sunburn, thunderstorm, the sun, night breeze, sunflower. Okay, take them. You can write them down or just do it in your head. Arrange them. Now, I pressed some of our staff into service and made them stop doing important things and help me. And, um, and I, had them, I had them do this, and, and I received a number of really interesting answers. Uh, there were a number of them that were a variation on this. The arrangement was this. Uh, sunflower, thunderstorm, night breeze, the sun, and sunburn. And when I asked the person, why would you do it in that way? The answer was, well, that's the order I like them in. I, I like sunflowers. I really hate sunburns. Uh, and you may have done lesser to greater, greater to lesser, but how many of you arranged it according to, to, to like? To, to, and how many of you did something like that? Okay, good. I, I also had a number of them that were this, uh, the sun, sunflower, sunburn, thunderstorm, night breeze. And the logic was that's the progression of a day. And they said that's, some of them put night breeze first, but it was the progression of a day. How many of you did it like that? That was your logic. Okay, quite a few of you. The, the point is however you arrange them, You naturally devised order, a hierarchy. In fact, if I had said nothing, I didn't want to take time, but if I had said nothing, even without me saying arrange them, you would have. You would have. It's what people do. You you move things according to cause or influence or importance. Hierarchy is natural. Humans cannot deny it. They exist and must be understood and appreciated. By the way, quick side note. That is why. The people who are protesting authority always insist on their own authority once they get power. And they will never let anyone disagree with them because they get trapped in their own lie that order exists. Okay? Stanford professor Bob Sutton is not a Christian apologist, but even 
Dr. Sutton understands that Paul's point here is undeniable. Bob, by the way, teaches organizational change uh, at Stanford, and he's the author of a book I really liked, a book called Scaling Up Excellence. Um, in a recent Forbes article, by the way, the title of the article was, Hierarchy is Good, Hierarchy is Essential. Dr. Sutton said this, look what he said. I was raised to view hierarchy as a bad thing. Given my ingrained biases, I was taken aback by my own answer a few years ago during an interview with McKinsey partner Rick Kirkland. Before that, Rick was the editor of Fortune for years. Rick was interviewing me about scaling up excellence, and he closed the interview by asking what I learned from our research that surprised me most. I immediately said something like, I've always despised hierarchies in my heart, but this research taught me that they're good and necessary. Of course, some are better than others, but spreading and sustaining excellence depends on having an effective pecking order. Close quote. Just as in business, in every home there is an inescapable reality that there is hierarchy. God's way is rarely followed. God's way is for these two equals, man and woman, to take on the roles that He has for them in unity. Now, listen, being equal does not mean that having the same roles. Being equal doesn't mean you have the same roles. That doesn't work. Being equal and having different roles doesn't mean that somebody has greater or lesser value. With their own personalities, their own situation, culture, each couple is to grow in excellence by having men who are servant leaders and women who are navigators. More on that in a moment. First, look at what Dr. Sutton went on to say. He said, hierarchy, number one, is inevitable. When scholars attempt to find an organization not characterized by hierarchy, they cannot. And it's a brilliant part of his book where he shows all these organizations that pretend they don't have any order, but they do. They always do. Anarchy doesn't work. Number two, organizations and people need hierarchy. Gruenfeld and Tiedens described a series of studies showing that when agreement is absent about who has what authority, members become less committed to their groups, less productive and effective, dysfunctional competition for status emerges, and coordination and cooperation suffer, close quote. Hierarchies must be appreciated. And in verse 10, Paul introduces an important but unseen factor, angels. Angels must be honored. Angels are real. The Bible says that angels observe Christian worship. In fact, God uses them to minister to us, even in ways we don't know. Hebrews chapter 1, are they, talking about the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. That's why Paul says that we must appreciate sex differences and organizational hierarchies. If we don't do so, it dishonors God and His angels, period. Now, Paul doesn't say really why that's offensive to the angels, I'll speculate for just a second. I think a likely possibility is the angels have observed in their past what dishonor achieves. They, they, you know what they saw? They saw their own kind ruined and turned demonic when Satan rebelled against his role under God. Whatever the reason, Dr. Ryrie summarizes the outcome when we refuse to follow God's way. He says this, insubordination offends the angels who observe the conduct of the believers in their church gatherings. Now, let's get back to that male-female dynamic. Go back to verse 11. Let's read it again. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. Man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Interconnection must be appreciated. After a lot of study, I think I have found a decent way to capture the multifaceted Hebrew terms that are used in the Old Testament of husbands and wives. They're very intricate terms, and they're hard to translate into English. I think a good image is to, is to use the pilot and the navigator on a plane. Okay, the pilot and the navigator on a plane. The wife is the navigator. 
Now, when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see it translated, usually the original term is translated helper, but that's not strong enough. It, it, it is a much stronger term in the Hebrew. She is an equal in every way. She can fly the plane if needed, but it, but it works best when she is the one laying out the course. By the way, I think that this may be why your wives get so angry when you won't stop and ask for directions. <laughs> I really... I, let me, let me say this, I have, never met, I have never met a professional pilot who would ignore the word of his navigator. Yeah, the, pilot's, the pilot has the final say, but he is a fool if he doesn't listen to the guiding partner that God has granted him. A fool. Meanwhile, to the husband, God's way for the husband is to sit in the left seat to be the leader. Somebody has to fly this thing, and it doesn't go well if he doesn't strap in and lead but he leads as a servant. Think about it. His role is to ensure the safety of all aboard and to make sure this craft gets where God intends for it to go. And I have never, ladies, I have never met a professional navigator who thought it would be a good idea to push the pilot out of his seat and for her to take the stick. This applies beyond marriage. It applies beyond the church. Look at Bob Sutton. Look how he ends, ends his article. He says this, as you scale an organization, getting rid of the hierarchy or even assuming that a flatter one is better, it's the wrong goal. Your job is to build the best hierarchy you can. Mark Templeton, former CEO of the software firm Citrix, makes a lovely argument about the difference between the need for hierarchy versus how people ought to be treated. In Scaling Up Excellence, we quote something he said in the New York Times. I like this so much I put it in your notes. Uh, Mark Templeton, you have to make sure you never confuse the hierarchy that you need for managing complexity with the respect that people deserve because that's where a lot of organizations go off track, confusing respect and hierarchy, thinking that low on hierarchy means low respect, high on hierarchy means high respect. So hierarchy is a necessary evil of managing complexity, but it in no way has anything to do with respect that is owed an individual, close quote. All God's people said, <clears throat> interconnection must be appreciated in business, in church, and in the home. Now, Paul closes the section by reminding us that nature also must be appreciated. Now, now, look at verse 13. When Paul says, judge for yourself, he is employing a very common Roman rhetorical practice. It's a rhetorical question. He is not saying that there is no absolute here. He's not saying that these words aren't Scripture. He's saying that his point is reasonable even from a purely naturalist point of view. Okay? Now, in Paul's day, the visible trait was hair. Um, a woman with very short hair was being made a public disgrace. Did you know that about Rome? It, 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 was, uh, it was a severe punishment in Roman practice to shear a woman. If, if, if we were in the Agora in the Forum together and we saw a woman whose head was shaved, we would know that's a criminal and she's under punishment and we, uh, you just you move the other way. That was, that was just what was done throughout the Mediterranean world. A man with long hair, by contrast, was considered a barbarian. All right? <laughs> Seriously, when you saw a man with long hair in the forum, you were assuming that was a barbarian, which meant that he had forfeited his honor, he was against the Roman peace, and he couldn't be trusted. That's what it meant. So, so basically, what this is saying is that Roman people felt about long hair the way your dad did when you were a teenager, Mr. Nice Warner, and you had your long hair. That is the exact, it's the exact same thing. Uh, now, when I was first a Christian, and I was first studying this book, the big issue in applying chapter 11 was something called unisex, okay? Pe people back then were trying very hard to pretend that men and women are exactly the same. They are just all robots. There is no difference, right? And, and it was goofy. It was obviously unnatural. Today, the problem's a little different. Today, the main problem in applying this text is transgenderism. Transgenderism is a strange twist on sexuality, but the issue's still the same. There is a natural order. You can pretend all day that it isn't true, but nature will not be thwarted. Listen. 
If you are a parent, an educator, or a health provider, please, please do yourself a favor and read this article by the American College of Pediatrics. It's not very long. The title is Gender Ideology Harms Children. And it closes. It's very lucid. It's very well written. It is not an attack piece. It's just well researched. And it closes with this statement. Conditioning children into believing a lifetime of chemical and surgical impersonation of the opposite sex is normal and healthful is child abuse. It is child abuse. Now, if you're an individual suffering from gender dysphoria, please know that God loves you. He, he loves you so much that He has granted you the help and care of His Spirit and His church. Don't hide your struggle, but don't pretend that wrong is right either. Take it all to God whose grace is sufficient. Please, please contact one of our pastors. Let us help you learn how much joy there is in following God's way. You do not have to give in to hormones or social pressures or feelings. You can live your life God's way. All God's people said, amen. amen. All right, let's wrap up by going back to the question we asked 20 minutes ago. Do we really follow the leadership of the biblical apostles? Do we, do we really live God's way or do we live life my way? Again, Dr. Svigel is brilliant on this. I, I, I put this in your notes too. This is fantastic. Look what he says. If conscience submits to reason, it will be rationalized. If conscience submits to emotion, it will be compromised. If conscience submits to society, it will be relativized. But if conscience submits to God, it will be energized. So let's energize our consciences. Go back through the two honors and the four appreciations that we've just studied in this text. Where are you weak? Where are you weak? Do, do you struggle with honoring God? A lot of us do. Kind of, kind of live like you're the center of the universe. Sex differences, especially, especially for young people who are being pounded with the idea that, that there's no difference. Is that a struggle for you? Do, do, are you struggling with hierarchies and appreciating them? Or, or maybe a, a better way to put it, with getting rid of bad hierarchies and building biblical ones instead. Uh, maybe you're struggling with that. You don't, you don't even think about the fact that angels are observing us right now as we worship. And, and not to worship them, but to honor God's creatures who serve us, we should do things God's way. How about interconnection? Are you forgetting how, especially if you're married, how precious it is that you're interconnected? Or are you weak on, on nature? A lot of people in our culture are right now. They, they try and make believe whatever you come up with is your thing. Feel the force, you know? Maybe you struggle with the fact that God made things a certain way. Where are you weak? Let's pray about that. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for all my brothers and sisters. I pray for all of us who, um, who are prideful and dishonor you in so many ways all the time. It's wrong and we are sorry and we beg you to help us change. Father, I pray for those who aren't appreciating sex differences or hierarchies. Those of us who aren't honoring angels, we're not worshiping as you've made clear. We're not appreciating how you provide for us. Those who are not appreciating interconnection, especially married couples that have, that have been together for a while and have forgotten what an incredible gift it is to be completed by their partner because they get so upset about toothpaste caps. Father, I pray for those of us who are not appreciating nature and the beauty of your science and your world. Help us to grow in that. I pray that you change all of us. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.